The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. Good morning, and uh, good to see you all here. Uh, trust that you'll have a great weekend, and then uh, final two days before the Thanksgiving break. Hard to believe, uh, but the end of the term is upon us, and uh, I know that a lot of you have assignments piling up and uh, did see a great email uh, of encouragement go out from Dean Porcello to you about making sure that you rest or be productive if you need that but uh, we're very near the end of the term and I want to uh, this is actually my final uh, time I guess I'll be up in front of you once more briefly at the Christmas Chapel but this is the conclusion of the fall series and I want to thank you as students for uh, a good run this semester uh, thus far and for all the uh, support and encouragement that you've been to one another but uh, knowing that the end of the semester is near and you have uh, the holiday break, you'll come back and then we'll uh, run forward into finals and all of that, I thought it would be appropriate if uh, we prayed together. So uh, will you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we are mindful to be grateful this day as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday and prepare for Thanksgiving chapel on Monday. We are mindful to be grateful for all the gifts that you give us. We are grateful for the gift of life and time and time together in this place. We are grateful for the friendships that you have afforded us, for the relationships that we have with one another, with our faculty members and those who serve here. We thank you for the community that we enjoy here and for this institution that you have sustained for more than a century. We thank you for these students and for the grace that you've shown in their individual lives for your sovereign care in bringing them here in sustaining them in the midst of their successes and in the midst of their trials and challenges. Father, we are grateful for all the blessings that we enjoy by your good hand. And among all of these, we are chiefly thankful for all the blessings that are ours in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. We are grateful for his sacrificial death, for the shedding of his blood as payment for our sin. We are grateful for... Uh, the teaching and example that he has provided us for all the benefits that are ours in eternity and all the benefits that are ours now in the life and time we have remaining here on earth. Father, we're grateful for your spirit, for uh, its indwelling us, for the gift that it is to us. And we pray that you would make us grateful for all these gifts that come from your hand as our Father and Creator, from your Son as our Savior, and from your Spirit as our Teacher counselor and comforter. Father, we are especially grateful for the way you sustain us in our time of need. I pray for these students as they look to the end of the semester and for their teachers and for the staff members who serve here, that you would give us grace and strength equal to the task that lies ahead in the days and weeks to come, that you would cause us to not grow weary in doing well, but rather give us the kind of strength that is necessary to please you in everything that we do. Father, for those who are feeling sick and under the weather, for those who are feeling weakened by their physical condition, we pray that you would give them strength equal to their days. We pray that you would give them grace to bear up under their physical infirmities in a way that testifies to your sustaining power. Father, for those that are struggling with relational dynamics, either here at the university or beyond these walls with their family and friends at home, we pray that you would give them grace and wisdom. Give them the faith to trust that you are in control of all things 
Give them the grace and compassion to deal with others in a way that befits your word and is pleasing to you. Father, we pray that you would uh, also be with those who are feeling overwhelmed by their circumstances, who are struggling with the very things we've talked about this semester, with fear and anxiety, with discouragement and despair, with anger, with a loss of perspective, with a sense of purposelessness. We pray that you would give them grace to be fortified in their inner beings according to your word and by the work of your spirit to bring discipline to bear upon the life that is theirs emotionally and intellectually. We pray, Father, for those that are feeling the pressures of life, the circumstantial uh, uh, things that bear down upon them, that you would give them perspective and strength to trust you, to trust and believe in your promises, to uphold one another and encourage one another. Father, we pray as a community you would give us what is necessary to care for one another in the way that you expect us to, as brothers and sisters, as members of one body, as your children, as the servants of our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen. So today I want to uh, continue and actually wrap up the semester series on sound judgment, thinking biblically about the disciplines of mind and heart. And I want to talk today uh, specifically about uh, this issue of being or feeling overwhelmed. It's a good time in the semester to do it and a good way to wrap this up. It's part of life. We tend to uh, uh, forget that part of life is being overwhelmed from time to time. And the passage that uh, Dean Porcella read for us will be the basis for my comments this morning. And uh, it's a good one because it talks about a, a purposeful approach to life. Our life in the circumstantial world in which we live and our spiritual life. But I do want to set a little context first and just that we would all sort of come to terms with this reality that um, we talk often about this concept of being overwhelmed. You know, I walk around campus right before breaks and uh, I'll always say to students that are coming by, are you ready for break? Uh, no one ever says no. No one ever says no. Um, and a lot of times what happens is there's a conversation that follows where a student feels particularly overwhelmed uh, by what's going on. Um, but the thing is, if we think about the idea of being overwhelmed in that term, it's a pretty robust term. It's part of the human experience. What do we mean when we talk about overwhelmed? Well, sometimes I think it's helpful to think about it on the good side. There's a good being overwhelmed, being overwhelmed by the love of God, the grace of God, the blessings that are ours in Jesus. When we come together to read scripture or sing, that's the point. You're singing about these deep truths, and we should be overwhelmed by the love and mercy and kindness of God that's been lavished upon us in and through his son Jesus. We should be overwhelmed by that, moved to worship, not because it makes us feel good, but because we're overwhelmed by those truths that affect us in a deep and abiding way. But we're overwhelmed in more, more sort of mundane ways or more human ways or less spiritual ways, for example. I mean, sometimes you wake up, uh, and uh, particularly this month of November, which is the colder on record, uh, coldest on record, I've woken up and been overwhelmed by uh, 18 degrees in the beginning of November. Not really what I expected, and I'm completely overwhelmed. I mean, it's not just I walk out and say it's cold. It's really cold. I'm preoccupied by it, and I get miserable about it as well. I remember being overwhelmed the first time I saw my wife. That was a good overwhelm. Right? I remember walking into that building at the camp and, and 
thinking she was someone else, and when she turned around, I was pleasantly surprised it wasn't who I thought it was, and overwhelmed by her the moment I saw her. I, I remember very clearly that was my sense. Wow, right? You have things like that, whether it's a person or a sunrise or a story or a movie or a piece of music. We have that sense. It's the sense of being overtaken by something, surprised by something, caught off guard by something, and, it, and, it, and we feel the weight of it. And we experience that in good ways, and we experience it in ways that are more trying and more troubling. When I think of this issue of overwhelmed, I think about the way that over, being overwhelmed by things can often cause us stress, lead us to a feeling of helplessness and weakness, a feeling that we can't possibly go on, we're so overwhelmed by something. The interesting thing, in, as I was thinking about this, this this talk about being overwhelmed, there are things that overwhelm us, circumstances that overwhelm us, and then oftentimes the resulting feelings in the midst of those circumstances add insult to injury, as they say, and it becomes more overwhelming. You get overwhelmed by something. This happens to you the first week as a college student. I I warn you at the beginning, look, you know, you start classes by Wednesday of the first week, you will be what we refer to as syllabuzzed. You're thinking about all the assignments over a 15-week period as though they're all due the first Friday. You're completely overwhelmed by it. You should be overwhelmed by it. It's a lot of work. It's not easy, is it? It's a lot of reading, a lot of writing. There's something always hanging over you. You get overwhelmed by your responsibilities as students, but then when you start thinking about it, holy cow, this is more than any human being could ever bear in the history of humankind. And now that feeling starts to pile on, and overwhelming becomes this snowball effect where you have a circumstance that catches you off guard and surprises you, and you're overtaken by it, and then all of a sudden your mind and heart are racing in directions where it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and you're overwhelmed by it. Stress can be associated with it, the sense of helplessness and weakness. How could I possibly do this? A sense of can't. Now listen, as I've said all along this semester in doing this series, these are sensitive subjects. I I actually, this is another one where I really struggled with this because I want to be very pointed and honest with you about the, the issue of being overwhelmed or feeling overwhelmed or getting overwhelmed and how we should be approaching that from what I think is a biblical perspective to be purposeful in our approach. But we all have different experiences and we all have different thresholds. And we all think of the issue of being overwhelmed from our own personal perspectives. Look, I talked to some of you, you are overwhelmed, and by all objective standards, you should feel that way. But earlier this week, I bumped into a student, I said, how you doing? I'm a little overwhelmed. I said, what's got you overwhelmed? I have an exam on Friday. Look, in all honesty, as your president, you need some perspective. If you're overwhelmed by one exam on Friday, We need to actually open up our thinking about what others around you might be experiencing. This is the reality, though. We all come. Now, the problem with that is I walked away from that student and thought, gee, that's really not something to be overwhelmed by, but I should have probably asked how you're doing in the class because the sense is, well, I've failed everything, and Friday's do or die for me. My life ends on Friday if I don't get a C, which is not good perspective either, right? But that's the reality. We all have different thresholds. And then we struggle with this issue that being overwhelmed by something leads us to the sense of weakness or helplessness and causes us to want to quit. 
I was thinking about, you know, in all semester we've been trying to deal with this issue of how the sensibilities of our day sort of creep in and affect our sensibilities as Bible-believing followers of Jesus. And the culture says stuff like this to us when we start to feel overwhelmed by our circumstances and the emotional and, and, and thought patterns that come along after that. They say this, you don't need this in your life. I've had people say that to me in moments where I feel overwhelmed and stuff is stacking up and I'm feeling the pressure of it and it might be stress or it might be anxiety or a sense of helplessness. I've had people in my life who say, just, just drop that. You don't need that in your life. Well, you know, the problem is sometimes it is true that I don't need it in my life. Most of the time in those circumstances, though, it's that I don't want it in my life. Those are two different things. But there's this cultural, this, this cultural sort of language about, you don't need this. I was reading something the other day from, a fr- from somebody I know who's, who's a believer and someone that has a, a relatively high profile who said, only do what makes you happy. And I thought to myself, Jonah, Moses, David, pick someone in the Bible, right? Anyone in the Bible, only do what makes you happy, you'll have trouble obeying the Lord. Because circumstantially, happiness for us is this very superficial thing, things that make me smile, things that make me giggle, things that make me laugh. Biblical joy and happiness is much deeper, but the world around us, when we talk about this overwhelmness, hey, look, you, you don't need that hassle. You don't need this in your life. Only do what makes you happy. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, the sort of uh, uh, mental and emotional muscle heads among us who say things like this, no pain, no gain. Right? You know this saying, that which does not kill us, what? I like my version. That which does not kill me, better start running. Right? I mean, the idea is what? But, but that's true. Like, that which does not kill us only makes us stronger. No pain, no gain. The culture has thoughts about these things. The question is, how should we as biblical Christians, be thinking about these things. Listen, the first thing is this, and I want you to hear me loud and clear. There is such a thing, there is such a thing as being overwhelmed, of being truly overwhelmed by our thoughts, our feelings, our circumstances. But listen, there's also such a thing as thinking, believing, and saying we're overwhelmed when we are not. Why do we do that? It's a question worth asking ourselves, and we may not like the answers. I was thinking today, and you may or may not, depends on how much you, you, you watch reruns, but there's this, there's this episode in Seinfeld where George Costanza is constantly looking stressed out and overwhelmed, and his boss is convinced that he's the busiest person in the organization, all because he's rubbing his eyes to look busy. Sometimes we are truly overwhelmed, and other times we believe we're overwhelmed, we say we're overwhelmed, we think we're overwhelmed, when in fact we're not. Why do we do that? And one of the reasons is because we find ourselves not wanting to proceed. Things get hard and we want a way out. And when the culture says, if you're overwhelmed and unhappy and doing something that is stressing you out, drop it like a hot rock. The thing is, we find ourselves being gra- not really overwhelmed, but wanting to be overwhelmed or saying or thinking we're overwhelmed because it's a way out. I've used it in my life. When I'm in a situation I do not want to continue in or I want out of something, the sense is I can't do this anymore. 
I remember very clearly, and some of you know this, when I first started working with and training horses, I remember the first time I was thrown from a horse. And I remember the pain uh, and the fear that came from being thrown off an animal like that. And I didn't just fall off the side like somebody forgot to tighten my cinch. It wasn't like that. It was a rocket over the horse's head, right? And I remember hitting the ground and getting up rather quickly because I'd seen the movies where they stomp you afterwards, although this guy was going in the other direction. But I remember getting off the ground rather quickly, and the fellow who trained and discipled me said, come on, you got to get back on. I said, I can't get back on that horse. And he said, you can't or you won't. And I said, well, I can't. And he goes, you mean your leg won't bend to reach the stirrup? You can't swing your leg? You, like, you physically can't. No, no, I mentally can't. And he said, well, that's called won't. Right? That's called won't. And I, rem- and, and I remembered at that point in time, I remembered a poem that was introduced to me, uh, not personally introduced to me, but President Reagan's Secretary of Education talked about this poem a lot when he was in office. It's a poem by Edgar Guest, and I memorized it, and I tried, uh, my kids memorized it, and we talk about it a lot, and I offer it here only because it's associated with this word can't. Edgar Guest in 1916 wrote this. Now, pardon the pronouns, it's 1916. Can't is the worst word that's written or spoken, doing more harm here than slander and lies. On it is many a strong spirit broken, and with it many a good purpose dies. It springs from the lips of the thoughtless each morning and robs us of courage we need through the day. It rings in our ears like a timely sent warning and laughs when we falter and fall by the way. Can't is the father of feeble endeavor, the parent of terror and half-hearted work. It weakens the efforts of artisans clever and makes of the toiler an indolent shirk. It poisons the soul of the man with a vision. It stifles in infancy many a plan. It greets honest toiling with open derision and mocks at the hopes and the dreams of a man. Can't is a word none should speak without blushing. To utter it should be a symbol of shame. Ambition and courage it daily is crushing. It blights a man's purpose and shortens his aim. Despise it with all of your hatred of error. Refuse it the lodgment it seeks in your brain. Arm against it as a creature of terror. And all that you dream of you someday shall gain. It's a pretty powerful poem. I wouldn't say that it's entirely biblical. But I do think it, is, it underscores this idea that being overwhelmed leads us to this sense of I can't do something. What Edgar Guest is saying is you, you probably can. Now, we're not all equal. We can't all do the same things. There are lots of things I would like to do in life that I am not physically or intellectually capable of doing. If you need neurosurgery, you do not want me. Right? But that's not what the poem is talking about. What the poem is talking about is that creeping into us when circumstances seem too much for us is this thing that says you can't possibly proceed. He is not guaranteeing, he is not guaranteeing success. He is not saying if you, if you rid yourself of can't that you will not fail. What he is saying is you won't quit without trying. And that is, in a sense, a very biblical notion. We must take responsibility of our mental and emotional discipline. We must take that responsibility seriously because we're called to live all of life with purpose and intentionality. And this is what Paul is exhorting the Christians at Corinth to do. He says, we do not run aimlessly or box as beating the air. And this applies to our approach to mind and heart. We must be purposeful. 
or we will find ourselves rolling along in this snowball effect. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here in the passage that was read is, in the midst of being overwhelmed, you must remember this, you do not run aimlessly. We're not running around without purpose. We don't beat the air without like, thinking about what we're doing. You don't box that way. You, you look silly, right? And it doesn't accomplish anything. And what Paul is saying is we have to be purposeful. We have to live our life with purpose. And I am encouraging you that that means purposeful in the life of the mind and heart, in your intellectual and emotional dimension. You have to be intentional and purposeful about it. If you're not, what you'll say is, whatever I feel is whatever I feel. And there is truth to that. David cries out in anguish and anger. He prays imprecatory prayers upon his enemy. He's real honest about what he's feeling. But he always comes back to truth. And so here we find ourselves doing the same thing. We have to avoid this temptation to be swept up in things. And when Paul is talking about this idea here of running with aim and boxing, not as beating the air, what is, comes through as I read this, and he talks about it elsewhere, is this idea of discipline. And I want to share this honestly. I think this is a problem. I think we live in a culture that thinks discipline applies to athletes and artists because they're trying to achieve a, person, a, a, a certain level of skill. But for the rest of us, discipline's a dirty word. It's oppressive. It makes me feel bad about myself. It makes me feel like I should be doing something that I'm not doing or not doing something that I am. Yeah. That's what Paul said, right? We quoted this last time. The very things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. It's very interesting to me how much the Apostle, the Apostle Paul talks about self-control and self-discipline in his own life, in teaching to the church, and especially to his students, Timothy and Titus. Because it's an important part of our, our life on this earth and as servants of the Lord to be intentional and disciplined, even in the life of our mind, even in the life of our emotions. There are other things that I think about when I think about this passage. And there are two things that I would like you to bear in mind. Two things to bear in mind when you're feeling overwhelmed. First, I would say to you that resilience is not a myth. Experience and biblical examples show us that we're capable of more than we think we are. Second, God has given us the resources to endure, persist, and stand. His grace, his wisdom, love, mercy, and his word, his promises, and his people, they all fortify us and strengthen us. So those two things I would like you to think about, resilience and resource. Listen, in thinking about this issue of resilience, we get stronger by persisting, not quitting. Our mental and emotional muscles need to be exercised, and when they're exercised, they are strengthened. So avoiding things that tax us only makes us more frail, more susceptible to the lies that we cannot make it, that we cannot endure. Yet you and I are called to do so, and it takes self-discipline to hold that line. When James says that, that, that you should count it all joy when you encounter various trials for they develop perseverance, it means that God wants us to persevere. He wants us to keep our hand that is set upon the plow there until the job is done. It doesn't mean that some of you will struggle and falter. That's why brothers and sisters are around us to pick us up and keep us moving. 
But it does mean that as soon as it gets hard, we don't quit. And the worst thing is that we decide we're going to keep ourselves from situations that tax us mentally and emotionally. I've talked to people who said, I'm done with people. Which means you're never going to be done with people. Just saying. If you say, I'm done with people, you are never going to be done with people. It's a lie. It can't happen. Why do we say I'm done with people? Because I've been hurt and I don't want to be in that situation where I feel that again. Guess what? The only way to get better at it is to be in there. If you're an athlete in the room, you know this. You can't develop better skills at your sport by sitting on the side. You have to be out there practicing. Artists and musicians know the same thing. You have to be in the game. You have to be doing If you say, look, this is hard, I'm going to shrink back into a hole, into a shell, I'm going to pull it down over me, you're only going to get weaker. In the physical world, what do we call that? Now that we have science majors here, what do we call it? Very good, atrophy. (laughs) You're only going to get weaker. And so the issue is we have to stay in the game. And that's what we're called to do, this resilience factor. And I'll tell you something, there are ways to do this. I, 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 I actually think this is very helpful for me in my own life, was to reflect on biblical examples of, of resilience. Look, there is no question that Job is overwhelmed by his circumstances and feeling overwhelmed. In fact, when, when we come to that critical point, where is he? Sitting in ashes, scratching himself with broken pottery, waiting to die. Pretty overwhelming situation. That's not a wrong order at Chick-fil-A. That's like real pain. Right? That's real suffering. That's real being overwhelmed. His friends are terrible, telling that something's wrong in his life. His worth, his wife, lovely woman, curse God and die, you wretched man. Right? I mean, this guy's got it bad in every dimension. He's sitting there in ashes waiting to die and yet proclaims, I know what, that my Redeemer lives. He persists. He has resilience. He, he, just when you thought it couldn't get worse, it gets worse. Some of you know people in your personal life who are like this. My, my wife and I read a book on the Donner Party. I, I, every time I read it, I think, I, I don't know how they did it. I, I can't believe they didn't die sooner. I read the Louis Zamperini story, Unbroken. I think to myself, I would have been dead on day three. How in the world did he get through all of that? There's a resilience, the sense that you think you, you, think you can't be wet or cold because you've never been wet or cold. Now, there is hypothermia. Check it out online. Read it. You don't want to just be smart. But the issue is a little discomfort is not your ruination. You will get stronger as a result of it. I I say this to you all the time in my class. Nothing that you learn to do in life did you learn by getting it right the first time. Yet what happens to us is we we lose sight of the fact that we, we have this resilience. God put it in us. People have endured great hardship in the history of humankind. And I think that we need to remember that. That this there's a sense that. That I actually think, you know, so one time I heard this, this illustration that God made each of us unique, just like the snowflakes. The problem is we actually use that term to talk about fragility, that we're all snowflakes. Any little bit of heat and we all melt. Listen, we're not snowflakes. We're the children of the living God. 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses, the creator and sustainer of life, were the servants and soldiers of the suffering Savior, the risen, living, victorious Lord Jesus. We are those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who strengthens and comforts us. And we are the descendants of the apostles and martyrs who endured unimaginable hardships. We are not snowflakes. Don't hang that label around your neck. It doesn't mean you're not human. It doesn't mean you're not fallible. It doesn't mean you might not be frail. It doesn't mean you might not be experiencing fragility in your life at any given moment. But God made us to endure and expects us to persist. But it isn't just the resilience issue. There's also this issue that God has given us resources. He has given us all we need. We are His children. He has given us His Word and His Spirit. He's given us a calling and a divine enablement. I, I love this passage in addition to the 1 Corinthians passage. The passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul in chapter 11 is outlining his experiences. He's had far more imprisonments than others, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, three times beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many and a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. What does he say at the, at, in the middle of chapter 12? For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, what? Then I am strong. God doesn't say to us, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do this on your own strength. If that's what you read in the Edgar Guest poem, look past that and see this biblically. The truth is the Edgar Guest poem for us should be a way of life, not because we're stronger than everybody else, which is what Paul is saying here, but because we have the Lord. In that passage in Philippians, in chapter 2, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, do you know what it says in the same context? For it is God who is at work in me, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We have to remember that there is this thing called resilience where we can bear up and, and do more and bear more than we might think we could. But we also have these resources that God in his grace and love have given us. He does not call us to persevere and to persist and to endure because he knows we can't. He calls us because he, to do those things because it brings him glory and he will give us what we need. Ultimately, it's this. In all of this throughout the whole semester, what ends up happening to us is the circumstances of life come to bear upon us. And then if we're not careful and we're not disciplined, we allow the, the patterns and thinking and emotional approaches of the world around us to sweep us up in it. And we lose sight of what the Bible teaches us about the way we are to think and feel. We lose sight of the importance of self-control. We feel that we are victims of our circumstances, our feelings, and our emotions. 
And we live in a day that sometimes puts the power of feeling ahead of thought or the power of thought ahead of feeling in making decisions. I want you this semester to actually think about this. You do not need to be a victim to whimsical, emotional, or irrational thought patterns related to your circumstances. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was talking to Christians who were enduring great social, economic, and physical hardship. And what does he say in chapter 12 but this? Fix your eyes on what? Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. In the end, Christian, this is it. We do not set our eyes on our circumstances or our emotional reactions to those circumstances or obsess over our thinking about those circumstances. The Bible teaches us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, not our circumstances, our feelings, or our thoughts. It teaches us to endure, to be disciplined, to press on. And it teaches that in our weakness, we are made strong. So Christian, do not waver. These truths are worth clinging to. They're worth clinging to. And if we do so, we will show sound judgment. We will be thinking biblically about the disciplines of mind and heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the truths of your word and for the power that it has. We thank you that it is living and active, that it divides between joint and marrow. We pray that you would give us the confidence in your word that is required to endure and persist. And Father, we pray that even when we're feeling overwhelmed, we might, that we might think in terms of self-discipline and not allow our thoughts and our emotions to rule us, but rather that we would stop and bring to bear these truths of your word. Father, we pray that even in the midst of our suffering and extreme hardship and the stress and anxiety and the fear and anger that we would experience, that your spirit would be at work in us, that you would be at work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure, that we might find ourselves strengthened through Jesus Christ to do all that you've called us to do. And Father, if we're here and we're struggling because we actually like being in these situations, we like what comes from feeling and declaring that we are overwhelmed. We pray that you would strengthen us in our faith to see that you want for us a better way. A better way. Remind us of the words of our Lord that each day has enough trouble for itself. Rather, Father, give us the grace to seek you and your kingdom of righteousness first and foremost above all things. And we pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Have a great day and a great weekend.